You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So I'll turn in our Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be paying special attention to the verses 8 to 17, but we will read the entire chapter. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And here begins our text for this morning, verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. That's the end of the text. We continue reading in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O Sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, 
and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Beloved congregation of Christ, we like to think of ourselves as being people of the book. And of course, our book is the Bible, and the Bible is everything for believers. And it's also fitting that from time to time we reflect on how we read our Bibles and how we understand what we're reading. For instance, today we've come to this crucial passage of 2 Samuel 7, the passage in which God makes His covenant with David. And as we read and study passages such as this, what kinds of questions should we be asking? What should be our primary concern? Loved ones, that question has to be answered by taking into account the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is there to reveal God to us. The Bible has been given to unfold the mighty deeds and majesty of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the Scriptures so that we would know the Gospel, so that we would know the person and work of Christ, be saved from our sin, and magnify the glory of God. That's the perspective we need as we deal with any Bible passage. That's also the perspective we need as we come to this passage of 2 Samuel 7. What does this passage reveal to us about God? How does this passage speak to us of Christ and the gospel? Those are the questions we want to answer this morning as we see God making rich covenant promises to David, his servant. And that's our theme we're going to see three things. First of all, the content. Second, the enjoyment. And then finally, the fulfillment of these promises. Well, last time we looked at 2 Samuel 5 and David's enthronement over all Israel. Chapter 6, David brings the ark of God to Jerusalem. And that signifies the consolidation of his kingdom and the firm establishment of Jerusalem as being not only the political capital of Israel, but also its religious center. As we come to chapter 7, David's kingdom is well established. It's secure. At last, there's peace. No more enemies threaten either the nation or the throne. 
David, consequently, has some time to think, to reflect. And as he does that, he notices that the ark of God is still in the tabernacle. And you remember that the tabernacle is not a permanent structure. The tabernacle was built during the years of wandering in the wilderness. It was mobile. You could transport it. It was a tent. And you remember also that the ark of God, which dwells in the tabernacle, is where the presence of God dwelt among Israel in a special way. So David was saying, I have this fine palace, this fine palace of cedar wood. But God is still living in a tent. There's something wrong here. This has to be fixed. And Nathan the prophet hears David's musings about this. And he tells David to go ahead. Do whatever he thinks he has to do. And David can do it with God's blessing. But it turns out that Nathan spoke too soon. Because in the night, Yahweh, the Lord, comes to Nathan with a revelation. And perhaps that revelation took place in a dream or a vision. Perhaps Nathan heard a voice speaking to him directly. The text is not clear on the means by which this revelation took place, but the text is clear on the message. God tells Nathan to go to David and to put the brakes on the temple building plans. God does not want David to build him a house. Instead, what God wants to do is something far greater, something far more jaw-dropping. Basically, it boils down to one word, grace. God tells David to look back over the history of his life. Look back at what has been done. Look at the grace that has been received and experienced in the past. David experienced God's grace when God chose him to be king. David witnessed God's grace when God went with him in everything. And David tasted God's grace when God took all his enemies out of the way. Whether that was Goliath, Saul, Philistines, all the enemies are gone, every single one. God kept his promises in times past. He can be trusted. You can depend on him and on his grace. That holds even more so true for us as we've seen God's gracious activity in history and also in our own personal histories in our lives. God has always been there and always working, always showering grace upon grace. Because of Christ and because of the gospel promises, he never lets his people down. David has experienced God's grace in the past. And now God promises him more grace in the future. In verses 9 to 11, Yahweh, the Lord, you know, wherever you see capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh outlines what that will look like. Verses 9 to 11. First of all, he says that David will be given a great name. David's name will go down in history. 
never to be forgotten. David will be given rest from all his enemies. God promises peace. David wanted to make a house for the Lord, but God comes and says, forget it. I will make a house for you. In other words, David, sit down and know that I am God. You should know that I am the God of grace. I don't need anything from you. Instead, I want to bless you. I want to pour out blessing on you and on your family for future generations. And ultimately, this blessing upon David is not for David's own sake, but for the sake of the people of Israel. God wants to bless David because of his promises, promises that were made in ages past to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God wants to establish his people and provide a place of peace and security for them. God's eye is not just on David, but also on the big picture, on Abraham's descendants, on the children of Israel. This promised reign of David's line that we find in verses 11 to 16 is to be lengthy. In fact, the the, the one word that gets repeated here several times over, maybe you notice that too, is the word forever. God's promise to to, to David about the throne of his kingdom is indefectible. Indefectible. That means that it, it cannot fail. Nothing can stand in its way. It will inevitably be fulfilled. And there are three things that that God says about this. He, He says that death cannot invalidate it, sin cannot destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. Death cannot invalidate it. In verse 12, the Lord speaks of David's death. His death cannot invalidate what is promised. God will keep on going with David's offspring. By the way, God says, that offspring, your son, will be the one to build me a house, to build the temple. In verses 14 and 15, God says that sin cannot destroy the promise. There will be consequences to sin, but sin will never take away God's love. There will not be a repeat of what happened with Saul. And then in verse 16, God underlines all of this by repeating that David's house, kingdom, throne, will last forever. And notice uh, the repetition there in, in, in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. There's repetition there. And in Hebrew, that's the same as putting all of this in 20-point font. Bold, underlined, italics, caps. Whatever means you can imagine for emphasis. This kingdom is forever! And so there you have the content of God's promises to David. And it's important to note that these promises are spoken of elsewhere in Scripture as being God's covenant with David. For instance, we see that in Psalm 89, which we sang a few moments ago. It's also in Psalm 132, which we're going to sing after the sermon. This covenant with David, 
doesn't just come out of the blue. This covenant of David with David has a history. It's building on past covenants. It's building on the covenant of grace established with Abraham. This covenant with David is in turn the foundation for the covenant of grace that we find ourselves in today. And in this covenant of grace, God is everything. God's promises are everything. God's promises are rich. In the covenant of grace established with believers and their children, God promises himself to us. God promises his love to us. God promises everything about himself to us. And in the covenant of grace, we are as rich as David, and and even more so because of Christ. Because of him, we can be absolutely, positively assured of God's never-failing mercy and his grace. Brothers and sisters, it's important that we see God revealed in this passage. He is the covenant God of constant, never-ending grace and mercy. He was that way for David, and he will continue to be that way for us. In God's covenant with David, as in God's covenant of grace today, there are rich promises. But then we all ought also to ask the question, how can those promises be received and enjoyed? Well, the answer here is very simple. It was simple for David. And it's also simple for us. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it is simple. Believe God. That's it. Believe God. Rest and trust in those promises. For David, that meant believing that God would carry through as he had done in times past. For David, that meant believing that God would be faithful, that God would send the Messiah, the one who had been promised from the beginning to crush the head of the serpent, that he would fulfill the promises made to the patriarchs. For us, that means resting and trusting in Christ as our only Savior. Loved ones, be sure this morning as you're sitting here in church, be sure that you are continuing to fix your eyes on Him. And as believers do that in ages past and present, there are two other truths that our passage puts before us. And both of them are found in verse 14. The first is, I will be His Father and He will be my Son. I will be His Father and He will be my Son. In the Davidic Covenant... God promised to be a father to David's offspring. What that means is that he promised a relationship. A relationship of peace and fellowship. A relationship of love and communion. And in the administration of the covenant of grace today, that promise remains. In Romans 8... The Apostle Paul reminds us in that well-known passage that we are sons of God. 
And in Galatians 4, 6-7, he writes, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. We are heirs. We are heirs of eternal life and of the kingdom of God. Through the covenant of grace, through the gospel, we know and believe, we rest in the fact that God is our Father who is going to lavish us with a rich inheritance. The second truth we need to see is also found in verse 14. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. That still has everything to do with faith and trust in God. Because you see, unbelief is what produces wrongdoing in our lives. Unbelief is what produces sin in our lives. Because none of us lives consistently with our faith fixed on Christ. That's why we need to hear it constantly. We need to constantly hear the gospel call. And that's also why the man in Mark 9.24 cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If we could constantly look to Christ and depend on Him, if we could consistently, 24-7, 365 days a year, have our faith focused on Him, we would never sin. Similarly, when someone lives in sin, unrepentantly going their own way and doing their own thing with disregard for the Word of God, Brothers and sisters, that's not, first of all, a matter of ethics. As if that person needs to hear again what he or she needs to do. Rather, it is a matter of faith. A matter of believing in Jesus Christ. When we are believing in God, when we are resting in Christ, our lives will inevitably bear the fruit of that. Well, sin still occurs in the lives of believers, and we are yet sinners. No one who truly lives in Christ, who believes in Him, will unrepentantly live in sin. Believers do not live in sin. Rather, they hate sin, and they fight against it. And it was that way also for David and and for his descendants. If David and his descendants were not looking to God and to his promises, trusting, having faith, they would end up doing wrong. But God promised not to remove his love from them. Like he did with Adam in the garden, he promised to go after them, to convict them, to discipline them. And the goal of this discipline is not punishment for the sake of punishment. It's not retribution or or payback time. Rather, the goal of discipline is to bring back the wayward child. God the Father wants His child to come back. 
God the Father wants His child to live in fellowship with Him. Not to go His own way and to do His own thing to His own destruction. And so God promises tough love if the need arises. And that will not be easy. When that tough love comes down the pike, the covenant doesn't feel like a covenant of grace. The blessings of the covenant are not being enjoyed. But the reason why God employs tough love is so that sinners will come to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. God uses chastisement and discipline. He also uses the discipline of the church so that we may live in fellowship with Him, enjoy Him, glorify Him. What's described here in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, is not about God blowing His top. It's not about God lashing out at David's descendants. It's about an act of love. And that's why God adds, but my love, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In this life, God's patience with his covenant people is amazing. It's virtually limitless. But don't kid yourselves, because ultimately there is a limit. One cannot presume upon God's patience and mercy. It is possible, and it happens, that a person is born into the covenant of grace. And then they go on to reject God's promises, to reject the warnings, the chastisements, to reject Christ, to reject the gospel, to be hardened in unbelief, to live in sin. Scripture gives powerful and and pointed warnings to us about all that. And we find some of those warnings in the New Testament in the letter to Hebrews. For instance, we have Hebrews 3, verse 12. In Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then later on in Hebrews 10, 28 to 31, anyone who rejected the law of Moses, this is Hebrews 10, 28 if you're following along. Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? He's talking about covenant people, not just your average vanilla Gentile. Speaking about God's covenant people. The, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Indeed, it is a dreadful thing to spurn the covenant of grace. Beloved brothers and sisters, please, 
heed the warnings of Scripture. I urge you, again, look in faith to Christ. And you can be confident that you will enjoy all the blessings of the covenant. The covenant of grace. Hear what God says in in, in Hebrews 3 verse 1 also. Hebrews 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Well, Nathan reported the promises to David, and you can see from the rest of the chapter what David did with those promises. He was blown away by them. He believed them. He embraced them. David accepted God's word in faith. He trusted that God would do all that he had said. He believed that God would give a kingdom to his family. Now, God had promised that the kingdom would be an eternal kingdom. However, as we look through the Old Testament, we discover that the Davidic dynasty lasted 400 years. For over 400 years, one of David's descendants ruled over Israel and or Judah. Now, 400 years is nothing to shake a stick at, but it still falls short of eternity and forever. So when it comes to the fulfillment of God's promises here, was there a failure? To answer that question, we need to look again at the New Testament. What it reveals about the great son of David. In Acts 13, Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch, and he explained that the promises of 2 Samuel 7 about David's family, well, those promises were really about Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews quotes verse 14 in Hebrews 1 verse 5, and he applies it directly to Christ. I will be his father and he will be my son. Hebrews says that God was speaking prophetically about Christ when he said that. And in Luke 1.32, when the angel appears to Mary, he says that the child to be born will be called great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Jesus Christ came from the line of David. God established the kingdom of Christ. Solomon may have built the temple in Jerusalem, but Christ himself was and is the temple of God, a temple that cannot be destroyed. In him, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Christ is also the one who sends his spirit to dwell in us so that scripture describes us individually as being the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are those who Peter says are being built into a spiritual house. Christ is the one who gathers, defends, and preserves his church. And the church is also described in the New Testament as being the temple of God, the house of God. Find that in 1 Corinthians 3. Describes there God's building project, which is us. Christ is building a house for God's name here, in this particular church. And Christ will rule forever. He is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. 
the Lord Jesus. He did no wrong. And He required no discipline or chastisement from the Father. He received the floggings of men, but not because of His sin, because of ours. And in His life and in His death, He was perfectly obedient to God. He did that in our place. He did that for us. And through His obedience, through His suffering and death, our place in the covenant of grace is secure. We look to Christ and we hear God saying in the New Testament, Mark 1 verse 11, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We hear God saying that to Christ and to all those who are in Christ, who have union with Him by faith. You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Hear God saying that to you this morning. We can know for certain that God is saying, I will never take away my love from you. We can know for certain that God's love endures forever and that in Christ we have the promise of an everlasting kingdom. Loved ones, God's promises to David were most beautifully and perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And it's to Him that the Holy Spirit is pointing us in this passage. The Holy Spirit is pointing us to God's love in Christ. Once again, to the Gospel. And so what is God telling us to do in this text? Simply this. Believe His Word. Trust Him and His love and grace. Acknowledge Him as your faithful Father. Be impressed with His gracious deeds in times gone by and anticipate Look forward to, expect more of His grace in times to come. In other words, brothers and sisters, here is your God revealed in grace, glory, and majesty. Entrust yourself to Him. Let's now pray together. God of grace, mercy, and love. Who are we, O sovereign Lord, that you have brought us this far? How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people? The people that you went out to redeem for yourself through Christ, to glorify your name, to perform great and awesome wonders, You have established your church as your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become our God. And now, Lord God, we ask you to keep forever the promises you have made to us and to our children. Please do as you have promised, so that your name will be great forever. Help us, we pray, to love you and trust your word. Help us with your spirit to believe the gospel. And look to Christ, in whom all your promises are yes and amen. We pray in his name. Amen. 
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.